Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat, my baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I have the amazing Mia Finlay with me, and we are going to be doing a deep dive into all things social media and diet culture. So thanks for joining me this week, Mia. I am so happy to be with you, Millie. Very, very happy to have been asked to be here today. Now, I want to start off for those listeners who don't know you and your story and what you do, I would love you to give them a little bit of an insight. I know there will be a lot of them out there who already follow you and know your journey well, but for those who don't, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your journey? Sure. So probably the best place to start, and please just like give me a wave if I start monologuing. This is where I tend to go into a bit of a speech. So I went into recovery from my eating disorder seven years ago this Saturday, actually, is my seven-year recovery anniversary and had been struggling for six years with a variety of eating disorders. So what started off as binge eating disorder morphed into bulimia, which then eventuated into anorexia binge purge subtype. So these things are pretty nefarious and they shape shift. So there were a few diagnoses over a six-year period, which I developed as a coping mechanism from pretty severe depression and anxiety, which had gone untreated. So on the first day of my recovery, I was going off to see my psychologist for the first time, was running late as I was prone to do back then and was looking for my car keys, picked up my iPad and went, oh, maybe it would be a good idea to have a record of this day because for the first time I felt hopeful for the first time in six years, I could sort of see some glimmer of light and hope at the end of a very long tunnel. And I just wanted to mark it. I'm a fairly nostalgic person. I just wanted something to look back on, whether it was a week or a month, or I couldn't even fathom the concept of a year at that point. And I just made a quick video talking about how I was feeling. Very, very, very poorly produced video, <laughs> a little floating head at the bottom of the screen and very, very quiet voice back then. Uh, recovery made me very loud again. That felt really good. And I came back from my session and talked about what 
I'd learned even in that first, that first experience and then just kept coming back and talking about it and holding myself accountable and, you know, keeping this diary of sorts. And people started to find it and say, I'm, I'm there or I've been there or you're further along than I am. And this has given me hope. And that felt really good. It was the first bit of purpose and identity I'd had outside of my eating disorder for such a long time. And, and it, you know, was clearly resonating with people. And I started to get better along with that, this passion grew for advocacy where I'd heard from all these people who'd been such a light to me saying, you know, I can't access treatment or I don't feel that I'm seen or that I'm validated or represented in eating disorder communities or treatment. So I started to look into the statistics that funding was terrible, access to treatment was terrible, and the channel sort of started to take a turn towards advocacy and awareness. And I started working with the Butterfly Foundation as their ambassador. And then two and a half years ago, started coaching, got my accreditation through the Carolyn Coston Institute, much like you, Millie, and just sort of ended up taking way more from the eating disorder than it ever took from me and just found this unbelievable sense of purpose and calm that I had never thought could have been possible stuck in my illness. It's just, and coming up to seven years, is like, wow, it's, it's like another life. It's incredible what's possible when you really give it your all. It is, isn't it? It's quite, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love that you say, you know, taking more from the eating disorder than it, it ever took from you. And I think in a way mm-hmm. it's almost sort of the best revenge for want of a better word that we went through something that was so, so traumatic. We've been able to turn it into something, um, something wonderful. And, and I completely resonate with what you said about being calm and feeling, feeling like we've just found the purpose and the reason for, for everything that we've been through. And I, I always feel really grateful for feeling, feeling that sense of purpose and that sense of calm because it is helpful to feel like there was a reason for that intense struggle. When you were in the midst of, of your eating disorder, for people who haven't been there, what to you did it feel like mentally, physically, spiritually? For me, I always talk about the mental aspect. I think partially because there's such a, there's such a stigma that it is a physical illness. And even though it manifest physically and there's physical symptoms. For me, the most hellish component was the only way that I can describe is chaos. It was just chaos in my head constantly. There wasn't a thought I could catch. There wasn't a thought that wasn't abusive, even if it was, you know, a quieter, more malevolent voice or a really loud, dominant, abusive, you know, uh, militant, scary voice. It was just this constant echo chamber of what was wrong with me, what I had to change about myself to be acceptable and lovable, what I'd done wrong, whether it was with my food or with my movement, or, you know, I would even so far as I would scuff my foot in the street. This is always the memory I come back to. Like I would, you know, when you scuff and you just like jolt Mm. slightly, it's not like you, you know, end up A over T sprawled on the floor, which is also fine and funny in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I would just like jolt slightly. I would beat myself up for 72 hours straight for being a moron, for embarrassing myself, for being an embarrassment for, and that would then spiral into you're unlovable, you're ugly, you're fat. If, you know, you didn't look like this, then you would 
you know, be better and you'd be a better person, you'd be more together. The slightest thing would just turn into this cacophony of abuse. Physically, it was an absolute roller coaster, and just this, it was like being on a never ending hamster wheel. Like, I'm going to be on this thing forever, constantly trying to get things into control. And when that control would get out of my control, then the chaos of my behaviors would come in. So I would go from severe restriction to then binging and purging because I couldn't maintain that restriction. So it was just this constant energy output trying to keep myself quote unquote in control as far as the eating disorder wanted me to be in control. And as far as spiritually and my connection with myself, I didn't have, I didn't have a sense of self. When I was younger, I was very outspoken and confident, very opinionated. This probably sounds familiar because that's exactly what I'm like now. (laughs) Um, And I just became sort of a zombie, a Stepford wife. I was just trying to maintain an external appearance that was just hollow. I didn't have a sense of humor. I didn't have any opinions. I didn't want to offend anyone or, you know, risk somebody not liking me. I was just constantly in pursuit of being as inoffensive as possible, as perfect as possible and not to be perfect, but just not to be the worst person ever, which is what I thought I was. So it was just a total, total disconnection and total chaos is probably the best way to put it. I can resonate with every single word of that. Mm. (laughs) Have you got any lasting physical implications from those years of disorders? Yes. So I have a skin condition called rosacea, which is a permanent skin condition. And there's sort of a connection also to little breakouts of what's called perioral dermatitis, which is quite a painful skin condition. And it makes sense because the skin is our largest organ, right? So whatever is happening internally is probably going to show up externally. So about three years into my disorder, I was living in London and I started to get these little sore red bumps on my skin, which irony of all ironies, I was punishing and hurting myself to control what I looked like to make myself look acceptable and my body couldn't tolerate it and it started to show up on my face which is the first it's the first thing people see right uh, which is just the greatest act of rebellion my body could have given me because it was actually one of the determining factors of me going and getting help because I eventually went to see a dermatologist and without saying directly what he thought it was he said this can very often be a reflection of how you're eating and how you're treating your body and my mum was there so I think he was trying to be a bit coded with how he was approaching it and put me on antibiotics and I realized you know I've had other motivations for going into recovery but this was really one that helped me stick to it especially initially because I could take all the medication in the world I wanted to but if the behaviors didn't change it was going to come back and it really made me reflect on why are you doing this? Why are you prepared to put your body through this to look a certain way when the result of that actually goes against that motivation, right? Because it's showing up on your face and that causes you so much distress. So it made me realize it was so much more than just wanting to be thin and wanting to be small and wanting to look a certain way because this was causing me so much distress, but I couldn't necessarily stop the behaviors. So what else was going on? What was this really linked to? But other than the skin condition, no, there's nothing 
I, I was quite lucky in that regard. I can manage this. This is not a big problem. But certainly, yeah, I, I think that I got away quite lightly. Have you come to a place of acceptance with your body now? Absolutely. So just like anybody else, I think we can have an unrealistic expectation of what recovery is going to help us achieve that suddenly mm. we're going to have this blissful, zen-like, problematic, free relationship with our body and that's just not necessarily going to be the case we are all entitled to have bad body image days which I certainly do occasionally hello once a month being premenstrual who isn't and our bodies are going to go through changes that we're going to have to adapt to no one can you know outrun that thanks to gravity and time right it's 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 coming for us all and also just natural life changes as well i come from a place of body neutrality so that's the philosophy that i sort of adhere to which is less an outcome than a process so it's more about acceptance tolerance gratitude respect meaning that we try to reduce our preoccupation with what we look like and by doing that, finding our worth and purpose through other avenues like our character, our deeds, our relationships, our interests, yeah. um, your career might be your creativity. And then learning how to tolerate bad body image days, learning to find gratitude and acceptance and a commitment to nourish and take care of your body, regardless of whether you're like loving what you're seeing in the mirror in the morning or you're having a bit of a rocky day where you really probably just need to put on the comfy clothes, avoid the mirror and be as gentle with yourself as possible. But most of the time it's acceptance. I also have to acknowledge I'm in a straight size body, right? I'm not somebody who's going to have to f- confront fat phobia in my day to day, but we all are on a body image journey. And I think it's accepting that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's lifelong and you've got to be prepared to put in the work just like with anything worth doing. And that's the perfect sort of segue into talking about how we do that and how we maintain body neutrality mm-hmm. and acceptance when we are living in this diet culture, body image obsessed society. Mm -hmm. And so I want to get your view on social media. And I mean, it can be so positive in so many ways. And you and I both use it in positive ways to reach people Mm -hmm. with recovery focused content, right? But then Mm -hmm. there is sort of this dark underbelly, if you will, of the recovery community on there, which can turn quite Mm -hmm. toxic. And then just also, you know, people following people on there who really aren't professionals and they're giving, you know, whether it be dietetic advice or exercise advice, and it's just so toxic and so dangerous. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I do want to ask you, do you believe that social media is a contributing factor to the rising rates of eating disorders around the world? Uh, I think it can be. I think it's so nuanced because as you say, there is such a positive spin on what social media can contribute to people's lives as far as recovery is concerned. Yeah, I know it was for me. I'm that was well before the recovery community online kind of exploded as it has in the last two to three years. When I was, you know, finding my way on the internet, it was seven years ago. There was no hashtag, you know, ED recovery trending all over different social media platforms. I mean, it's given me so much. It's given me my career and advocacy, and it certainly was a positive contributor to my recovery because I had to seek it out. So I got to be selective about what I let in because there just wasn't that much to choose from. Whereas now I think that you're really in the weeds trying to figure out what is safe versus what isn't. And when you're in a disordered mindset, 
I think that's where we get into the nuance, right? That you have people at different stages of recovery. So we can't make blanket statements like, well, it's all bad or it's all unhelpful. It's taking into account that somebody in the early days of recovery is far more vulnerable to unsafe material or kind of gray area material than someone who's further along, who I believe can benefit from having to discern what's safe and what isn't because you have to teach people that they are not going to recover into a bubble. To some degree, they have got to be exposed to not just what's in the recovery kit, that's just a sort of a microcosm of what they're going to experience in the world from a diet culture perspective, disordered beliefs that are going to come out of the mouths of their peers and their co-workers and overhearing, you know, a conversation in a cafe or on a train, you know, you're going to have to develop that filter that is down to you deciding, is this something which serves me or doesn't and being able to analyze what's beneficial to you and what isn't. So I think part of it is individual responsibility. I think another part of it is listening to the community, listening to what is helpful to the majority versus what isn't. Obvious things these days, like before and after photos, how on earth anyone can feel comfortable at this point posting a before and after photo, highlighting their, you know, underweight body, whilst in the midst of an eating disorder and think that that's beneficial to the majority is beyond me. Any mention of numbers, calories, weights, etc. I think there's pretty clear feedback now from the community that these are not helpful pieces of material, but then there's still some really gray areas. Like you say, people who aren't qualified creating material where you read that and you're like, mm where's your uh, accreditation? Where's your degree? You know, where are you practicing as a psychologist? It's, there's some really muddy waters at the moment, which definitely make me, make me a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it's, for me, it's like these people are vulnerable, right? So when you're mm-hmm. in the midst of eating disorder, your, your eating disorder is wanting you to look for anything that you, it can cling on to, to validate, you know, what it's trying to tell you. It's basically, it's lies, mm-hmm. right? And so we've, we've got these people on social media, spruiking all of these different things, which, and as you say, the evidence base is not there. Well, mm-hmm. our eating disorder doesn't care about that. It's just like, right, well, we'll latch onto that. Like you read that you know, for example, demonizing of, of different food groups, right? Sugar is bad, carbs are bad. This is, you know, you should be having this, you should be having that. I mean, if we were to listen to that, I mean, there's a good, bad thing every single day. And as you and I both know, food has no moral value and you're not inherently good or bad for eating a particular type of food, but people in the midst of an eating disorder or on the verge of kind of dipping into that don't know that. And I think mm-hmm. that's where it's really, really hard for people to decipher, hey, who are the experts and with that evidence base and who aren't because some of them that aren't do a pretty good job of putting on the facade that they are. Yeah. Like for instance, I had a client recently who sent me a sent me a list of dietitians who, you know, they wanted to work with and two or three out of the five were clearly spruiking, you know, weight loss, weight management, all of these words, which are just not appropriate for somebody who would be working with an eating disorder client. And the client is at the beginning of this process. So hasn't quite built up that filter yet, but to me, it just jumps off the page when we're looking at something that is gray area and could be disordered for a client. 
And so that's part of the work that you've got to do in recovery as well is to build up that knowledge and to expose yourself to resources which help you to see not that it's black and white, nothing should be black and white because otherwise we, you know, end up in extremes. But as far as I think, I think the line that gets crossed is when it goes from personal anecdotes, sharing your experience, fabulous, great. As long as there's clearly guidelines we're following, like not posting triggering photos and triggering specified, you know, behaviors. And, uh, it's something that could be seen as instructive or calorie amounts from when we were sick or weights, etc your own personal lived experience is incredibly valuable. I think when that starts to cross the line out of here's me sharing my experience and turns into what can only be interpreted as advice without that, you know, this is what I did or this is what worked for me. And that's where this retelling ends. But when it becomes instructive in any way, I think unless that is accompanied by an accreditation or some clear qualification, be on the safe side, take it with a grain of salt or just get it off your feed. It's just, it's starting to get to the point where being recovered or in recovery qualifies you to tell other people how to recover. And we just cannot mess around with this stuff. As we know, these are such, such challenging, highly, highly, highly dangerous illnesses. There is no wiggle room in terms of who to take your advice from there isn't. And I'm talking really specific advice about food, about treatment, about even anxiety management, et cetera. Unless that is coming from a qualified individual, you're just playing with fire. I couldn't agree more. The other thing I sort of wanted to talk about was the fact that what we see on social media half the time isn't the reality anyway. We've got the filters, we've got the retouch, we've got the Photoshop. Face tune. Oh, face tune. That's when I knew society hit a wall. Like... (laughs) We're doing it to ourselves now. How bizarre. Yeah. And so, I mean, we know that comparison is a thief of joy, but yet we, you know, I think we're all guilty at some point of going down that that comparison rabbit hole. But I think it just gets so dangerous and what we're comparing ourselves to isn't even the reality in the first place. It worries me that younger and younger boys and girls are seeing this content and believing you know, they don't, they don't understand that it's heavily filtered, that it's face-tuned, that it's photoshopped or whatever, and they are seeing these images and that are being held up as the ideal and then comparing themselves and they're chasing after. And, and I think, you know, as we see the rates of eating disorders rise among younger and younger children, I just really worry about the impact that that's all going to have on the next generation. Well, there's two things that we know which really validate that concern. One is that there was a bit of research done, this is pre-social media, but I think it applies, which showed us that people's exposure to television, the more that you're exposed to a certain message, it doesn't matter whether or not you know it's false or it's fictional. If you're exposed to enough of it, your brain starts to interpret it as sort of like a reality, right? So for instance, on social media, if you keep seeing skin that doesn't have pores, like... (laughs) which I mean, it's one thing people are changing the shape of their body, but it's like, everyone's got this newborn baby skin. What has, what has happened that we can't even look at human skin anymore in its original form. You see that enough. It starts to, if there's some research, which indicates your body, regardless of whether or not you say to yourself, this is Photoshopped, this is not real. Or even if it came with 
a disclaimer like they do in some magazines these days, you know, this image is photoshopped. Even if you have that accompanying information, your brain is being bombarded with images. It's not then taking the time to intentionally take into account the disclaimer. The visual impact is so overwhelming that your brain starts to use that as a reality to kind of compare yourself to. So even for adults, even for people who like you and I are more aware than most of the fact that these things aren't real and how detrimental their impact can be. That's why I even keep this stuff off my feed. Well, first and foremost, it doesn't really align with any of my interests to look at that kind of content. But if I were to go down a rabbit hole for say two hours straight, I probably wouldn't feel that great about myself either. And I'm all too aware that it's not real. So we also know that there's been an escalation in people taking into plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons images of either a celebrity who has facetuned the ever-living, you know, life out of their face into doctors and saying, can you make me look like this? Or facetuned photos of themselves and taking it into the doctor and saying, can you make me look like the facetune Cylon version of myself? And that's a clear indicator that people are very aware that this isn't real. And you even have plastic surgeons who thought that they would see some kind of ethical light in all of this coming out and saying, please don't bring us Facetune photos of people. This is not a reality that, you know, even we are capable of. So we know it's having that impact on aware adults and informed adults and people with fully developed brains. So quite rightly, what is it doing to a younger generation who are growing up with it constantly beaming into their eyes as opposed to us who used to get it through magazines and maybe a bit of television and movies as far as one body, one beauty standard and some element of photoshopping, it would be so unnerving to see it amongst even your own peer group from such a young age. I know I'm even weirded out when I see people I know doing it. I'm like, I just saw you last week. You don't look like that. And it's surreal. It's strange that, you know, it's gone from magazines doing it to celebrities, then celebrities doing it to themselves. And now we're all doing it to ourselves. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. And to that extent, we're all kind of a bit complicit in this practice that used to oppress us. And now we're all kind of oppressing each other a little bit. Yeah, you're right. You're right in that respect. Mm. It's, it's scary. Do you think Mm. there's one platform more than another that's more harmful? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I've heard all about TikTok. I wish I could sit here and talk about TikTok, but I think I'm just so outside of that age range. (laughs) Me too. Me too. You've got to get on TikTok. I'm like, no, seriously. No. No. Yeah. Not one more platform, please. Um, and it was the same with Snapchat. Like, I think it's a barometer of your age range yep. when Snapchat came yeah. out. I was like, we're I don't over know the how hill, to use man. this. I think we're over the hill. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well and truly. And I was like, I don't know how to use this. And more relevantly, I don't want to know how to use it. I can't go yeah. there. My brain has no more capacity. Um, so I've heard, I spoke to a journal a couple of weeks ago who was telling me these stats about TikTok and the amount of pro and material that's popping up there. I think there's Mm. a couple of things. I think that especially when it comes to disordered stuff, pro-anna stuff, pro-eating disorder stuff that we see across these platforms, one thing we need to take into account is the reason pro-eating disorder communities exist. I totally disagree with their existence. I totally disagree with the way that they choose to conduct themselves, especially those who are instructive around 
you know, behaviours, etc. But we have to take into account that the origination of a lot of these communities came from the fact that we collectively failed this group of people for such a long time in terms of giving them safer spaces, in terms of giving them, you know, the oversight and the validation and the funding and the awareness and they had to sort of go and hide in the shadows and what it really boils down to is a sense of community. They weren't given that. So as much as I disagree with the fact that they utilise social media platforms to spread such an awful message, I think that's an important thing to stipulate that I, I do understand where that sort of material comes from and, and why those communities exist. But I think any platform that is centred around visuals like Instagram, I think that Instagram is just a hive of comparison. Instagram as a company have done some pretty incredible things to safeguard people. They were one of the first platforms where if you looked up a concerning hashtag, the first thing that it shows you is resources for you to reach out to. For instance, in Australia, you look up a pro eating disorder hashtag and it will direct you to, would you like to get in touch with say the Butterfly Foundation, right? So they've done what they can to safeguard whilst also giving people the right to free speech, but it really does come down to the individual. Social media, your experience of it comes down to your interaction with it. If you even find that following lots of bodies, whether or not it's, you know, for the purpose of embracing body positivity and body acceptance, if you find that you're comparing, even if the intention is good, if the result is not positive, get it off your feed. Like I follow travel accounts. I follow English Bulldogs, I follow my friends, I follow an alpaca account that literally lights up my every morning and I'm not comparing myself to an alpaca. I just would like to go to an alpaca farm soon, please. So make it about your interests, make it about the things you want to do, where you want to, you know, go when we eventually can, what you want to see, your passions, your interests, even if you're, you know, following accounts with the best of intentions, if the impact is that you're comparing get it off your feed, go into your social media use with some intention, some clarity, and be really honest with yourself. Does this make me feel inspired? Does it make me feel nothing? Does it make me feel bad about myself? Am I just sitting here comparing to bodies? Am I comparing even to their lifestyle and what they have and what I perceive that I don't have? Go into it intentionally and clean it up and take some time away from it entirely, entirely. Anything with a visual component, I think has the absolute potential to fuel a lot of eating disorder thinking and certainly behaviours depending on how dark the stuff is that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not only bodies but also I think food. Like I read this stat the other day Mm. that there were orthorexic tendencies present in 49% of heavy users of of Instagram in comparison to 1% of the general population. Wow. And I was like, yeah, it was done in 2017, that study. And I was like, mm. that is crazy, but it does not actually doesn't surprise me because there is just so much of that out there as well. So I think it's bodies, it's food, it's exercise, it's the whole gambit. Yeah. As a side note, can you send that to me once <laughs> that study? That sounds fascinating. And that would be really useful for clients as well because I, I do something with clients quite early on where I do an, like a Instagram inventory, but it's really all of their yes. social media, right? And I'll give them like this barometer of what they're meant to be looking for. And they're like, oh, no, no, I, I think mine's pretty good. And then the next call, they're like, 
I actually didn't even do the activity. I just immediately went through and I followed all these people because by looking at it through that intentional lens, suddenly they were like, oh, no, if Mia sees I'm following this person, it's going to be like, why are you fine? And then they ask themselves the questions and then they're like, oh, maybe this isn't the one for me. But even for me recently, like obviously I'm, I'm coming up to seven years for recovery and I will post a random selection of my food, right? Some of it's intentional in that I'll show that I have bread for breakfast most mornings, right? I want people to, when they go back to be like, oh yeah, she has toast, she has toast, she has toast, she has toast, right? And like there's some chips and there's a donut and there's like, you know, a stir fry and there's a salad and there's pizza. I want people to see there's a selection. I do that very intentionally because food is a part of my life, but it is not my whole life. It is not my focus. And I had somebody comment last week, it would be really cool if you could post like unhealthy, I'm putting quotation marks around unhealthy, but they just said unhealthy foods. I was surprised to know that you like KFC. And at first I was like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. And then I sat with it and I was like, it's there. You scroll through, there's chocolate, there's all kinds of stuff here. And this is precisely why I do this because I know people are looking at and deconstructing my food and trying to figure out what I eat so they can figure out what they eat. And I know this because clients have told me they do that. They have told me I go through your feed and I try to figure out what you eat and it frustrates me that you don't show us what I eat in a day's or you've never shown like a foot, like, can you just tell me what you eat? I'm like, I can't. A, this is my body. These are my genetics. This is my hunger. This is what I like to eat. This is me responding to my body's cues. And this is my stage of life and, you know, my whole health universe existing within my body. And it's also more that we need to talk about why do you want to know? What's the fixation? So that's what I said back to this person. Like what, ask yourself why you're asking me to show specific foods. Do you need permission to have those foods and what does my eating of them do for you? And the fact that I can eat it and not make a point of posting it is the more important action than here's proof of what I'm eating. I'm beyond having to prove to anybody what I eat. And I hope that everyone gets the chance to get to that point where food is just not, it's just not that interesting. It's great, but it's just not that interesting. I feel like exactly the same way. If I post something, it's because I have really enjoyed the combination of the flavors. My mum's a chef, so right. So Mm -hmm. there's that foodie aspect, right? You know, but I'm not going to post like my general day to day, like whatever, because I post something because I go, oh my goodness, I've had this really wonderful experience or it's resonated or it's been a highlight for me, you know, and that's how, how I see it. And then it's sort of like you, you find yourself, as you say, people commenting and going, well, hang on. It's like, this is my life and I'm not showing Mm -hmm. everything because no one does on social media. And it would be really, really boring if everyone just showed exactly what they ate and exactly what they did every single day. It's not, you know, it's not what the platform's for. Well, some people might. I think that's another example of sort of, we were talking earlier in the, in this chat about gray area. So when I was on, I've been on YouTube for seven years now and I've never done what I eat in a day. And a couple of years ago, I was just getting inundated with, can you do a, what I eat in a day? And I was like, where is this coming from? Like all I'd ever seen of what I eat in a day was like fitspo people. And I was like, why the hell are people asking an eating disorder recovery account to do a, what I eat in a day? And then people started sending me other people within the recovery community. They're what I eat in a day. And I was like, 
oh God, I can't think of anything worse. I would just forget. I'd eat lunch and be like, oh no, I was yeah, film that because I just don't think about it, right? You grab stuff from the fridge, like you're like, whatever, like you yeah, might be like about to have a shower right. and be like, I'm a little bit peckish. You have something, you don't, yeah, it's just not a calculation. It's like, not should, do, do you want to see like the teaspoonful of peanut butter that I had at 2.15 as I was running to like my next call? Like what? And so yeah. then I was like, oh, okay. So this has become a thing. And it's less of a thing now because much like the before and after photos, which went through their trend and like sharing numbers that went through its trend and yeah. showing all your inpatient photos, which it still is a trend. And that thing of like putting in your bio, how many times you've been impatient, like just all of these really sort of breeds this air of like exclusivity, right? Unless you did this and you weren't sick enough or like you don't get like, I don't know, the gold star of eating disorders. I don't, I don't know. And I now hear from people and especially clients, some of my best insights about what is helpful and isn't. That's my clients. I'm not sick anymore. So I don't know what's helpful and what isn't as this community evolves. And as this content evolves, I'm not looking at it through that framework necessarily, like as accurately as someone who's going through it currently. And the majority, if not a hundred percent of people who talk to me about what I eat in a days was I was giving myself permission to eat. I was comparing what I was eating to theirs and either feeling better because I was eating less than them or feeling badly because I was eating more than them and they were smaller than me or that's what they perceived. I would hear, I would watch what I eat in a days because I wasn't eating and that was to sort of satiate myself visually. I've never heard necessarily this made me eat or this gave me the confidence to eat. It's people who say, I thought I was doing that at the time, but now that I'm further along, I can see from my more healthy mindset that is not actually what I was doing. So it is gray area. That's where I don't want to make sweeping statements because people in that place are like, no, this is really helping me. And I'm like, okay, come and talk to me in 12 months. Like, <laughs> and then they come back and they're like, oh, actually it wasn't very helpful, but I thought it was at the time. And it's like, you know, you've got, sometimes you've got to wait for people to get there. And that can be a little bit frustrating when you can see the writing mm-hmm. on the wall, but we just all mm-hmm. have, and I, I know that I did the same thing in my recovery. There were, there were things that were blatantly said to me. It's kind of like, Hey Mel, you probably, you know, should look at it like this. No, no, no. Yep. And then six months later, oh my goodness. Yeah, actually. My favorite opening to a sentence that I ever said that I now hear on a like weekly basis from clients is just so you know, this isn't my eating disorder talking. I'm like, okay, yeah. let's, let's listen to the rest of the yeah. sentence. Yeah. Well, the other one is like, oh, well, that's not going to happen for me because my eating disorder is different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm the unicorn. You forgot. Can't yeah. you see the horn sticking out of my head? I'm, I'm the one. Okay. So for people who are in the midst of, of their eating disorder, of recovery, what would be your top three tips for navigating social media and diet culture? Okay. Number one, Initially, when you are going into recovery, make sure that you are really following people who are recovered and have qualifications. I would be that selective when you first go in and to really do your research about who those people are, right? You can, you tend to see the same names coming up like Megzie, well, she's someone who doesn't have qualifications, but she's someone who is really respected and really known for not posting unhelpful triggering material. So if you tend to see names come up a lot that have been around for a long time, then you know it's a pretty safe bet. Like there's a lot of 
eating disorder specialized dietitians and therapists and coaches who have been around for long enough that they've kind of gone through baptism by fire, right? We've had to figure out this tricky stuff and have had a lot of feedback that's helped us craft our content in a way that is beneficial and mitigates as much harm as possible. Not everyone's going to love your content. Trust me, the feedback is constant and various, but for the most part, it's pretty clear that they are making a concerted effort to try to help as many people as possible without harming as many people as possible. So initially going into it, that will then help you to figure out when you see it, what is not helpful. Do not follow anything referring to numbers with before and after photos, anything that's even just physically focused, really heavy body focused posts. We want to see life as more than just the body and eating disorder and food, et cetera. We want to see a variety of interests and topics and, you know, clearly just more than it being about food and the body. Uh, Number two would be to seek out really, really helpful resources like Absolutely Love Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, the book have recommended that to every client. I have a couple of clients who have just finished it this week and their eyes, we get on a call and they're like, oh my God, we've got to talk about what I read about this week. It has totally changed how they see their own bodies, how they see other bodies, how they navigate the world, diet chat with their loved ones, with their family, what they see in social media, etc. It's It's an incredible resource. Other books like The Beauty Myth, Naomi Wolf, really seeking out reputable sources that teach you not just about maybe your own disordered thinking, but, you know, the wider diet culture that we all need to address and unpack. And number three would be, like I said earlier, diversify your feed even beyond bodies. Diversify the bodies that you're seeing on your feed for sure. All different sizes, all different backgrounds, all different races, all different ages, genders, etc. But mix in there as well your emerging interests or maybe just test out whether or not it could be an interest. Go out and get curious and just follow accounts that might be about crafting or might be about, that might be a poetry account. It might be, like I said, a travel account or, you know, there's all kinds of categories that you can go and follow and hashtags you can follow and see if it sparks something. Part of recovery is figuring out who you are beyond this process, seeing what other people are doing and what they're experiencing outside of the recovery bubble and the eating disorder bubble is one of the best ways. And yeah, just keep an open mind. But first and foremost, take responsibility for your consumption of social media. You are your best safeguard going into whether or not it's going to be a positive influence or a negative one and just be very, very discerning. That's so important. Such valuable advice because literally the power is in is in your hands. You've got the choice Absolutely. about what you view. You, mm-hmm. don't, you don't have an option if something triggering pops up, but you have the option to then go unfollow or, you know, no, I'm not interested in that content rather than going, oh, what's that? Let me have a little look in here. Mm-hmm. And to be aware that which part of you that's coming from, if it's that self-destructive, like, come on, just have one look. And then you're an hour scrolling into it and just wanting yeah. to engage in what it wants to engage in. That's it. Just get it off, get it off your phone. Exactly. And I think I love what you said about 
basically creating a, a feed that is life affirming. You know, mine's full of interiors mm-hmm. and travel and, and things like that, and and architecture quotes and yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I love Architectural Digest and and things like that, mm-hmm. and photography accounts, and I love you know quotes and poetry and um, peonies and Paris and all of these you know beautiful things. And I think it helps you to remember that hey, even though when you're in the midst of recovery, all it seems to be is about your eating disorder, that there is a life, a big wide world outside of it. And Mm -hmm. it's ready and waiting for you, you know, having a feed like that, um, because let's face it, we all do spend a lot of time on social media, can really help to remind you, hey, this is basically what you're fighting for in recovery. Absolutely. That there is, there is a you without your eating disorder. And it's, it's a different you from maybe even the person who was around before you're unwell. And I know that people struggle with that. Am I going to go back to who I was before? Not necessarily parts of you. Yes, but you have gone through this transformative experience that there's now just more of you and there's more insightful, probably compassionate, empathetic, curious parts of you. So the parts of you that remain hold on to those but be open to growing and learning and just like with the body image stuff it's sort of an ongoing process right it doesn't you don't just tick a box and you're done that would be utterly utterly boring and we don't do boring do we Mm-mm. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> as a rule you, thank you thank you so much for coming my uh, pleasure coming my on pleasure. today and joining me i hope you have a lovely rest of your day and we will talk soon all right honey talk soon There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. This is a Casco Media Production.